I mentioned last week <laughs> I was ready to teach chapter 4 because I had forgotten I didn't finish chapter 3. So we did a little bit of backtracking. And even as last week I struggled with this, and this week not as much because I was kind of set in my mind last week what I was going to cover in chapter 4. Chapter 4, and I, I brought this up at the beginning of our study of 1 Thessalonians, is that each chapter in Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians has a reference to the return of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus. Chapter 4 has a big part of it dedicated from verse 13 to verse 18. And I really wrestled with covering the whole chapter, but because I really want to cover more in depth the Lord's return, um, I broke it up that we're just going to look at the first 12 verses this morning. So next week we will look at, Lord willing, the second half of the chapter and really the the thread that is running through the entire epistle uh, to the Thessalonians. But before we get started, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful, always grateful, Lord, to, to come into your presence. Grateful, Lord, that you have made that way through your precious blood. Grateful, Lord, to your, for your word that still speaks to our hearts each and every day, Lord. And we pray, God, that as we are studying your word this morning, that you'd speak to us through it. Lord, you'd Help us to put into practice, Lord, to be doers of your word, not hearers only. And we just ask, Lord, for your spirit to work in our hearts and in our midst. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. You know, if you, and I usually encourage you to read ahead. If you've read ahead, you know that this particular section of scripture deals with fornication, with sexual sin. It's always kind of an uncomfortable subject for me to deal with. <laughs> It, what's that? Is it warm in here? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It, it isn't all that uncomfortable. And the, the interesting thing to me about it is just the church's abandoning of addressing the whole area and topic and issue of sexual sin. The churches, by and large, have abandoned that. Again, to how many times it's brought up in the scripture, there's an importance to it. So I'm just giving you kind of a layout as to where we're going. But I love just, again, to covering things in their context. And as chapter 3 closed in verse 11, Paul says, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Verse 12, The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as, you do, even as we do toward you, to the end that... He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Verse 1 of the chapter. Now, furthermore, we beseech you, brethren. And I, I read that previous part just because I want to point out that at the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul is talking about abounding in love, abounding in genuine love, the brotherly love that exists within the body of Christ. And he's going to actually bring this up. So in verse 1, he says, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. And again, too, he's using that same emphasis on abounding. In the previous chapter, verse 12, he wants them to abound in love. And in verse 1 now of chapter 4, he wants them to abound more and more in the things that please God. And he says in verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Again, I, I use the old King James for certain reasons. And for me, part of it is comfort. I grew up spiritually reading the old King James. I know at times people have difficulty with the the language and the you know sometimes it's referred to as being archaic. But part of the reason why I like it is just how literal it can be. And I was reading the newer translation in verse two, I was reading the NIV, and it just simply uses the word instruction, for you know what instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 2 of the Old King James, it says, you know what commandments we gave you. And I like the fact that the word commandment is used there because in the Greek, the, the root of that Greek word is command. And again, it, it ties a particular thing, a couple things together in this section of Scripture. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but in verse 3, he talks about sanctification. To me, the thread is this, keeping the commandments of God 
being sanctified, being set aside for God's purposes in our lives, verse 3, and sanctification is mentioned once again in verse 4 with references to how we're to possess our bodies as being sanctified, set aside, holy unto the Lord, and not, in verse 5 it says, not in lust. And then in verse 7, again, too, he mentions holiness. And again, too, that is a component, an element of sanctification. The, the same idea, the, the keeping of God's commandments, being sanctified and being holy are all uh, uh, something that is set, that is in common. But the chapter opens with Paul saying, you know how you ought to walk as believers if we know God's word if we allow God's Spirit to work in our lives as again to I think that there's something that takes place as God's Spirit comes in and indwells us as new believers we know what we ought to do we know it I think sometimes we 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 justify the things we do because everybody else is doing it you know as kids teenagers we use that excuse to our parents well you know can I watch this movie can I do this thing can I participate in this activity and just the idea of you know and then the parents you know saying no I'm sorry I can't do that and inevitably a child will a teenager will say well but everybody else is doing it and then the parents throw back the classic and in Minnesota this is probably what we use because we have the high bridge over in St. Paul my parents, I don't know how many times I'd, I'd hear, especially from my dad, if your friends jumped off the high bridge, would you jump off the high bridge? And maybe in other parts of the country. You know, Stacy, you live in the south. What do the what parents use there? No, they don't use anything. You know, if your, your, your friends jumped into the river, by the way, that's Stacy. She's part of our fellowship for a long time. And she's back in town for a, a little bit visiting. But, um, you know, those of you that lived in other parts of the country, you know, if, you're, if your friends, you know, jumped off a cliff or whatever, would you do that? But it's that same idea, that mentality of everybody else is doing it. And somehow we try to rationalize bad or sinful behavior because everyone else is doing it. But when it comes right down to it, we know how we ought to walk. If, hopefully, you're studying God's Word. Sometimes people just don't want to even read God's Word. They don't want... To, again to know what God says because then they feel like if I know what God says now I'm accountable I don't want to know what God's Word says I'm I accepted Jesus as my Savior I'm going to heaven but now I just want to live and do my own thing and the thing that the Apostle Paul says is you know how you ought to walk you know there are times in God's Word where he talks about living we should you know live in the spirit or live again to a particular way but I've always enjoyed the places in God's Word where it illustrates that a relationship with God is a walk. It's a walk. The Greek word that's used there, the thing I found really interesting about this, just kind of sometimes things really cook my noodle. I don't know. All of a sudden you're, doing a, you're digging into a passage and you do a little bit of studying of words that are used in the scripture and all of a sudden you see how they're used in the scripture. And the thing that I found interesting is that in the book of Acts, the word walk is used and it's the Greek word peripateo. Peripateo, if you want to write it down, P-E-R-I-P-A-T-E-O. It's interesting to me that when the word is used, and it's used a lot in the book of Acts, but every time that it's used in the book of Acts, prior to chapter 21, it literally means walk. We went for, you know, we walked to this place or walked to that place. But beginning in chapter 21, and all the way throughout the New Testament to the book of Revelation, Anytime that word peripateo is used, it's always used as a spiritual reference to following in the footsteps of Jesus. It's, it's amazing. And then in the book of Revelation, when it's used, it's used once again in the literal sense for walking. But I want to read a few of the passages just to remind us of what God's word says about a walk with him. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you ought to walk to please God and to abound more and more. In Acts chapter 21, verse 21, the first time that this is used in this way, he's, you know, this is them talking to 
the, the council, Jewish council talking to Paul. And he says in verse 20, it says that they are informed of thee that you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Again, to walking in that way that, you know, keeping the commandments of God. It was a false accusation that was being, being leveled against the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Speaking about baptism, therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Chapter Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. My favorite is chapter 4, Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. There are others as well. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I bring this up like I said, to just demonstrate a point. And again, too, just to use the word walk implies that there is a destination that you're going to. We might not know what the destination is, but you, when you're walking with Jesus, Jesus knows what the final destination is for us, the path that he is, in a sense, set out or laid out for each one of us. Same thing in the Old Testament, the children of Israel. When they're wandering in the wilderness, actually, they didn't really wander. We use the word wander. But the bottom line is, is they were following the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Wherever it went, they walked after, after it. And the thing is, a walk is, you know, there's several things that are implied with that. That there's a destination, that there's a path, that there is a leader, and that we are the followers in that particular work or walk. We're to walk the way that Jesus walked. We're to walk not only the way that he walked, we're to walk with him, but we're also to follow him. And Paul says, you ought to walk to please God. You know the commandments which were given you by the Lord Jesus. I, I love, again, too, the, the simplicity of God's word and I am concerned and alarmed by the forsaking of the teaching of God's Word. There are commandments. Why don't we study them to know what they are so that we can, in a way, fulfill what Paul is saying or what God's Word is saying about walking? And as I mentioned just the few verses previous to that in chapter 3, he talks about love. And he says, you ought to walk this way to please God. In verse 3 now of our chapter that we're continuing in chapter 4, he says, for this is the will of God. You know you ought to walk, and this is the will of God, even your sanctification. A fancy theological word for basically saying God is doing that work of making you holy, of setting you aside, of sanctifying you and sanctifying me. Our sins are forgiven when we're born again by the Spirit of God. Righteousness is imputed to us by faith. We believe what Jesus has done, and God now sees us as righteous. But in reality, in the flesh, I mean, we still struggle with and are tempted by sin. We've got a new nature, but God takes us and looks at us and now there are changes that need to be made. We need to walk with him. We need to mature. We need to grow. We need to be, in a sense, set aside for the purposes of God, sanctification. And again, too, that's not something that happens instantaneously at salvation. But that is something that then continues as we are walking with the Lord Jesus. And Paul says that this is his will that it's your sanctification, and verse 3, then the second half, he brings up the issue of sexual sin, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, his body, 
in sanctification and honor, not in the concupiscence, fancy old King James word, I'll read it in the NIV just so that you understand, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. So back to the old King James verse 5, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. This is the will of God. He wants to make you holy, set you aside, and part of the way, or one of the major ways that he does that, is that there is an abstaining from sin. A particular sin is brought up here. He says abstaining from sexual sin. Like I said, we, I, I, it almost seems like the church has just given up on this. The church has simply given up. They've just simply accepted the fact that all of the culture is doing it. Everybody's doing it, so why even bring it up? I've, on an email list server with about 250 to 300 other pastors, Calvary Chapel pastors, I should probably clarify that. And at times when different issues that are kind of hot-button topics in our society are brought up, you know, the pastors will go back and forth and argue different things, and when this issue of sexual sin or even the issue of fornication, I mean, um, homosexuality is brought up. You know, all of a sudden, this, all this discussion opens up, and there's a particular group, some of the pastors, they just kind of feel like, well, you know, why even address it? We want to bring people in. We want to love them. And those things are true. You know, it's not that, I, I think it's a mistake. I, I was thinking about this earlier this week just because maybe that, that it's brought up because of the election or just simply brought up because churches are accused of being narrow-minded or bigoted. You know, that we're against the homosexual community or that there's hatred there. You know what, if we really hated, you know, that particular element or segment of society, then we wouldn't tell them that it's sin. We wouldn't ask them to repent. We would let them continue in their sin that in the end God would judge them. But I, I, I don't view, you know, homosexuality any different than any sin. I mean, sin condemns a person. Sin separates them from God. Again, too, and my whole issue isn't to bring up homosexuality, but my issue is to bring up sexuality. And as then these pastors are arguing back and forth and how to deal with that particular sexual sin in a compassionate, loving way and make people feel welcome in the church and all these different things. I mean, some of the pastors have even said, well, you know what, I don't even bring it up anymore. Because again, too, you know, there, I mean, in the, in the pews, how many people are even just sleeping together heterosexually? So he's basically just said, I don't even, you know, I don't want to address it anymore. And it's like, you don't want to address what God's Word says to do? And to me, this, this particular area of sexual sin, of fornication, see, see how I, st I stutter sometimes even when I say that word? It makes me so nervous. <laughs> fornication. No. And I even think, of my, think to my own Catholic upbringing. Here's the thing. We were told that it was a sin. Sex before marriage is a sin. But fornication doesn't cover just sex before marriage. Fornication covers all sexual sin. And probably it's good to know, okay, is sex wrong? <laughs> Again, too, with my Catholic upbringing, I almost had the mindset as a teenager thinking, well, you know, sex is a sin, period. But then you start thinking, well, how did we? Yeah, my mom and all of a sudden you begin to think, well, we're kids, how do we, you know? Maybe some kids shouldn't be in here right now. But anyway, <laughs> but the thing is to define God is the one that has actually created sexuality. And it's to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. And there's a reason. And here's the thing. I bring this all up just because when I was growing up, we were just told that it was sin. We were never explained as to why it was sin so that we could understand the importance of it. We were just simply told, it's sin. Sex before marriage is sin. Okay, you know, then all of a sudden you grow up with this fear of it, and then should you participate in it in a sinful way, then you're carrying this burden of guilt and thinking, I'm going to hell and I'm burning. And the bottom line is we're already going to hell and burning, apart from what Jesus has done for us. But how do you deal with it? 
And the thing is, it's always been a problem throughout human history because we are created sexually. We are created with particular desires that, again, too, are to only be satisfied within the context of marriage. And again, you know, Paul is writing to a culture or society because the mindset today is let's not even address it because everybody's doing it. But Paul is writing to a culture and society that was probably even more sexualized and they had this issue of fornication than we do even today. I mean, even the, you know, the, 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 the church that was located in Corinth, one of the problems that they had was, again, to dealing with sexual sin, and the Bible addresses it a number of times. And, and, and again, too, the pagan temples had temple prostitutes that would go out and seduce people for money, and again, to somehow rationalize or justify it that it was for the worship of their gods. I even think about even God's people in the Old Testament after Moses ascends up into the mount to receive the Ten Commandments and him and Joshua are coming down. But in their absence, you know, God's people come to Aaron and says, what happened to Moses and, and what should we do? And Aaron says, hey, we'll bring all your gold and we'll make a calf and we'll make, a, you know, this is the gods that have delivered you from Egypt. We'll have a big debaucherous feast. Everybody gets drunk and everybody's going to take their clothes off and have a good time. And the problem is, is, you know, somehow we think that if we either spiritualize it, because there are churches and denominations today that have gone so far opposite of what God's Word says as to make any type of sexual activity, and they'll call it a sacrament, as long as it's between two loving people and they're committed to each other. Anything goes. And again, too, it's to deny what God's Word says. But the reason I bring, again, too, I want to say we're told that it's a sin, and then people that participate in it or they come to Christ, they feel this weight or this guilt or this, oh, my, I'm really, I'm not even sure I'm really saved if somehow before I came to Christ I was guilty of any type of sexual activity before marriage. And I've even shared this story before years ago. I, I received a call from a, a young woman, and she wanted to know if I would officiate their marriage ceremony. And, and I, I didn't know her. She called because she found Calvary Chapel, I think, in the phone book or by calling 411. And, and, uh, and I asked her the question typically that I will ask people when they call me and ask me if I'll, I'll marry them. I, first question, are you believers in Jesus Christ? Yes, we are. What about your fiancé? Yes, we are. And I went further on to ask a few more questions. And then I kind of usually will ask questions just to kind of get to know them. You know, how long have you been a believer? Well, do you go to church anywhere? If you go to church somewhere else, how come you're asking me to be the officiate the ceremony? So again, too, I'm just trying to get a big picture as to what's going on before I can say, yes, I'll do that, or no, I won't. But the interesting thing was is in kind of this line of questions, and again, too, I'm not trying to grill her or anything like that, but I got the sense that her and her boyfriend, her fiancé, were living together. And then when she started talking about their daughter, I, I, then I got, so you guys have a daughter. And then I just said, okay, so you're going to have to excuse me, but I'm going to ask you a very blunt question. You know, you said that you're believers in Jesus Christ. Are you guys sleeping together? And she began to kind of stutter the way I do when I'm talking about the subject. But she said, yes. And again, too, now, I, I, okay, maybe they are sleeping in the same bed, but they're not engaging in any sexual sins. So again, I just want to be perfectly clear. Are you engaging in sexual intimacy? And then she starts even stuttering more. Well, yes. And then I said, do you know what the Bible says about sexual sin or fornication before marriage? That it's a sin. And now she's quickly breaking down and crying. And then she's like, I've got to get off the phone. I said, well, before you do, I'd like you to just simply go to a particular passage and read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. And, and, and I thought for sure, you know, I wouldn't hear from her because she was so upset. But the thing I gathered from my conversation with her was, 
Even as a Christian, she thought that there was nothing wrong with sex before marriage. But the problem was, is again, she was thinking all of society, it's fine. Everybody thinks that it's fine. We see it in all of our media, in TV, and in movies, and in literature. We, you know, it's, it's used to sell, you know, products on television. I mean, it's so freely spoken of. And again, too, this conversation that I had with this young woman was before the Internet. Never mind the Internet now and the amount of, you know, pornography and things that are available there. And I thought I'd never hear from her, but a couple of days later, she calls me up. And she says, Pastor Mike, can we meet with you? And I said, sure. And when I sat down with them, she was so humble and so, you know, at first, you know, not only was she weeping, but she was also, I could tell, a little bit upset or angry. But she said to me, I thought for sure, you know, I felt like there's nothing wrong with what we do. We love each other, and now we want to get married. And again, too, you go down the same kind of rational, you know, rationalizing that the world uses to justify what we do. But then she said, but I read the Scripture. I read what God's Word had to say about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is just one passage. I'll read a few others. But again, this is something that's brought up in the Scripture a lot. You think that our generation is the only generation that has struggled with sexual sin? Do you think that the church, the, the, you know, the church today is the only, again, to uh, godly institution that struggles with, again, to bringing this issue up and people, again, to whether they're, they're not, they're going to receive it. But we have to go back to what God's Word says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says that God has raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by His own power. Verse 15, know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Because I mentioned back, you know, a few minutes ago, in Corinth, they actually had prostitutes that were going out. And again, too, they were doing it as a function of the pagan churches that some of these people who had gotten saved were now a part of, you know, Calvary Chapel at Corinth, but now they're still thinking, well, it's okay to to pay for sex and to do this. And he says, you know, I'm now a part of the body of Christ. Am I going to take a part of the body of Christ and make it, you know, a member of, of a harlot? And he says, God forbid. Verse 16, what? Know ye not that he that is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, says he, shall be one flesh. You know, when we think of sexual intimacy, we think, yeah, the Bible says that a husband and wife, when they engage in that, once they've made that covenant of marriage, they're one. But here's what God's Word is saying. It's not just simply limited to the covenant of marriage. When you engage sexually with someone else, there is a oneness that is taking place. And what Paul is saying is, is, you know, you're sleeping with a harlot, or again, to anybody. There is a oneness that is taking place. And he says, should I join myself and become one? And he uses then the references of the scriptures. The, uh, two says, he shall be one flesh. This is what God said originally to Adam and Eve. When he brought them, he brought uh, to Adam his wife, Eve, and he says, you know, the, the two will become one. And in verse 17, then back of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body. I mean, basically, he says, every, any, any other type of sin other than sexual sin, it's something that you do, you know, out of body. I don't want to say out of body, but, you know, if you lied about someone, it doesn't affect your body. If you steal or cheat or, or again to all these other sins that are done are done out of the body they can you can sin many times without actually affecting your own physical body but this particular area of sexual sin has to do with our bodies and the holiness of our bodies 
and the desire of intimacy that God wants to have with us, Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride of Christ, it all has to do with our bodies. And it says there in verse 17, he that's joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Verse 18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. I mean, it's almost as if God knew of the consequences of sexual sin. And I'm talking about the physical consequences that come, the sexually transmitted diseases, even some of them that can kill you. And again, too, okay, you know, some couple of decades ago, you know, the whole issue of HIV and AIDS came up. And initially it was something that seemed to be uh, a consequence or an, uh, a result of just simply that was found within the homosexual community, but it's not limited to that. Years ago, about 12, 13 years ago, when I was um, had my staph infection and was recovering from it, I had a line inserted into my arm and went to my heart, and I was on antibiotics 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But one of the things that I had to do with follow-up was once a week, I went to the Department of Infectious Diseases that Regions Hospital has. And they were trying to determine how I got this staph infection in my bloodstream and on my spine. And again, too, it wasn't something that is all that common. And they ask you a whole battery of questions. And some of them, they'll, they'll even kind of apologize before, well, we have to ask you what your sexual practices are. And I knew where they were going with this. They wanted to know if I'd engaged in any, you know, sexual activity that included homosexuality or bisexuality. And I said to them, I looked them straight in the face, and I said, I'm a Christian. My wife and I, at the time we'd been married, I think 18, 19 years, I said, I have been faithful to her and to her only for the last 19 years. So you can take that off the table. And it was interesting because even as I'd go every week to infectious diseases because they would maintain this pick line, sometimes they had to replace the plastic hardware. They were taking blood samples and checking the progress of my healing. But it was interesting, <laughs> just kind of as a side note, I would pay for parking every week when I would go. And parking at Regions Hospital wasn't cheap. But after going there a few times, I remember checking in at the counter of infectious diseases. And uh, they said, the, one of the clerks there just asked me, do you pay for parking? And I said, yes, I do. Oh, we should have told you, you've got free parking. You get free parking. I said, I do? Well, yeah. You know, um, you, you, you see infectious diseases every week. I said, yeah, I do. And you're seeing them because you have AIDS, because you're gay, right? And I said, no, I don't. And then she said to me, oh, I'm sorry, you don't get free parking. Only the gay community gets free parking. I'm thinking, they get free parking? I'm living a righteous life, and I have to pay for parking, and they're engaging in sinful activity, and they get free parking? Yeah, that's the way I was thinking, but... But all that to say, it's the endorsement of our society of these things. But again, getting back to what Paul says with regards to sexual sin and fornication and the consequences that come to a person that engages in these things. You know, the only way, again, to, to protect yourself is to be faithful to your husband and wife that you're committed to. It's the only way to protect yourself from some of these consequences that are mentioned sexually. And getting back to chapter 6, verse 19, he says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, I mentioned we were told that it was a sin. But what God's Word does is it tells us why it's a sin. It's a sin because what God has designed and intended through sexual intimacy, He has designed and intended to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. And the reason then, if you, if you, if you go the way that our society has gone, and you basically say, well, you know what, everybody's going to have these urges. 
Everybody struggles with this. And why make it so hard? And why heap that kind of guilt upon people? And, and we as a society, the teenagers have rights. We can distribute condoms to them. They can get pregnant and get pregnancy counseling. And we don't need, every other thing, every other issue, has, parents have to be informed. But when it comes to sexual issues, parents aren't informed because, again, to uh, the rights of the teenagers trump the rights of the parents in this particular area because their society is wanting to endorse sexual activity and wanting to remove whatever stigma or guilt that people may have. The problem is, is that people still have that guilt no matter how much our society tries to remove it. And what ends up happening is, is that there's only one way that people can deal with that guilt. They can harden their hearts. If this is sin, or even again, too, they're not even believers, but they feel like there's something wrong. And, I, you know, and they know that it's wrong, but again, too, everybody else is doing it. And it must be okay, and God's not going to judge me, and God's a God of love. And again, too, people's hearts just simply become hardened against it, and they're not convicted by it anymore. And the reason why it's important or to understand why God's Word calls it a sin is to understand the intimacy that God wants to enjoy with us as believers when there is a commitment. See, in marriage, sexual intimacy is something that doesn't have to be felt like it's wrong or dirty or tawdry or, you know, I feel condemned or guilt by it. It's something, again, to a married couple. You read, you know, read the Song of Solomon. Well, okay, don't read it unless you're married. <laughs> I was listening to Damien Kyle one time talking about that, making this reference, and he says, you see two people that are really enjoying themselves in the Song of Solomon. He says, the only thing that's missing is some Barry White playing in the background. <laughs> it's not that God doesn't want us to enjoy it. It's that he wants us, and we understand then that it's enjoyable within the context of a committed relationship. And when it's enjoyed that way, and then when you just simply say, it's okay for everybody to do it, and it's okay for everybody to do it with anybody that they want to do it with, and you don't have to feel guilty about it, and we can march and have parades about it, and somehow parade our rights about our sexuality, is to then take the illustration of what God has intended, the intimacy in marriage, and how it's enjoyed because of the commitment that we have, the lifelong commitment that we have. And it's to ruin that illustration because marriage, one of the things that marriage illustrates is the relationship that God has with the church. And again, you know, so many times in the Old Testament, God accuses his people of spiritual adultery, of being unfaithful, of worshiping other gods, of departing from that relationship with God. God loves you so much. He wants to have an intimate relationship with you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for the price for our sins so that we, any obstacles could be removed so that then when we commit to him, there's an intimacy that can only be enjoyed because the commitment and because the sin has been dealt with. And sexual sin, fornication, ruins that. And it, again, to it, it, you know, there is a design that God has in all of this. And he says, it's the will of God, even your sanctification, that you would abstain from fornication. That you would know how to possess your vessels in sanctification and honor, not in lust, even as the Gentiles which know not God. See, the difference is, is we know God. And the difference is we now have the power. Do people fall to this? Yeah, they do. But the other thing that's good to know is that there isn't any sin that God doesn't forgive. Don't try to explain or rationalize or justify sexual sin. Just simply confess it. John in his epistle, 1 John chapter 1, says that if we confess our faults, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, the only way that forgiveness is imputed unto us is by us 
confessing. Not explaining or justifying or rationalizing, but just simply saying, God, I did that and I'm sorry. I know it's wrong. I know it's sin. And in humility, then, when we come before God, God sees us as a father seeing a child that has blown it. And with that humility, brokenness, and confession comes the mercies of God and the forgiveness of God as well. In verse 6 of our passage, and again, too, this ties in with what he's been saying about sexual sin. He says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we have forewarned you and have testified. And then he says in verse 7, because God has not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despises, despises not man, but God, who has also given unto us his Holy Spirit. God has called us to be clean. God has called us to be holy. And for the person that despises, and again, to despise is to make a willful decision or choice. He's not talking about the person that struggles with their, uh, the temptations of sin. That's something different. But he's talking about the person that knows what God's Word says and despises it. Well, I don't think I want to do what God's Word says if that's what he's telling me to do. Or, again, too, I, I, I don't think I can love a God who doesn't let me... And again, to you fill in the blank with that, with any sin, and then to despise God is to despise the work that the Holy Spirit is trying to do in our hearts and keep us close to God. And I love then that as he addresses this issue, it's sandwiched in between because the previous chapter, verse 12, he says to abound in love. He tells us how we ought to walk, that this is the will of God, the importance of sanctification and holiness in our lives, and then he comes right back to love in verse 9. But as touching brotherly love, and again, Scripture uses different Greek words to describe, describe different types of love. The word that's used here in the Greek, and you're familiar with this, is the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia is named that because it means the city of brotherly love. It's a different type of love. It's not the type of erotic love or lust that is being talked about previously. But it's talking about the kind of love that brothers have for each other or sisters have with each other. The kind of love that's just like, you know, last night we were at a birthday party and, and met uh, a couple there. And they're believers. And it was just so cool because just I probably spent about half hour talking to this one particular guy. You know, Mexican background, you know, a year younger than, than myself. I'm 56. He was 55. But just when I heard about him talking about Jesus, how he came to the Lord, how he shares the gospel and evangelizes with others, and again, too, just to see his wife and the marriage that they have, and again, too, to know that Jesus and God and their relationship with God is the center of everything that they are and everything that they do, in, in, in five minutes, I love this guy. I love him. He's my brother. I, I, we can just hang out and fellowship together because, again, too, the work that God has done in our lives, the love, the genuine love. See, again, too, God does a genuine work of love. He de demonstrates His genuine love because of what Jesus has done for us. And either the flesh or the devil or the wor world gives us the counterfeit, the lust. And God is wanting to do that genuine work of love. And Paul commends the church because of their brotherly love. Now the problem isn't the brotherly love that you have in the church. The problem is the temptation to sexual sin that you may struggle with. And the warning that Paul is issuing here, or that God's word is issuing here. But he says, when it comes to brotherly love, you don't need that I write unto you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love, and the word that's used there is different than the word that's used earlier in the, in the verse. When he talks about brotherly love, he's talking about the word Philadelphia. But when he mentions love at the end of the verse, he says that you're taught of God to love one another. Now he's talking about agape. He's talking about a sacrificial love. And again, too, both of these are in contrast to fornication. 
He says, you're taught of God to love one another. I mean, we're taught through His words. We're taught through the example of what Jesus has done for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. I mean, that's love. Romans chapter 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. I mean, we know the difference between the real, the genuine, and the counterfeit, or the sinful. And he says, you're taught of God to love one another, verse 10, and indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. I love this because he mentions again to abounding and doing more that we're never in a static state of spiritual growth, that we stagnate or that we, okay, I, I feel like I've grown enough spiritually, God, I don't want to grow anymore. I mean, I love the passage, which, and I not love it, I, I, I love the, the example of it, but when Jesus talks about the vine and that it produces fruit, and then when God sees it producing fruit, that he purges it. And that word purge can mean to trim away and cut away things, and maybe there, that's what's necessary to produce even more fruit in our lives. But when he talks about that, that word purge actually in the Greek, and if you've been to Israel, one of the things that they do is that they grow grapes, not only on trellises like you see in wine country and parts you know, where grapes are grown, but they grow grapes also in furrows on the ground. And if you've been to Israel, you, you witness or you see this. And that word purge, and back then what they do, or even today what they do, is they set blocks underneath these long, you know, vines of grapes that are, are in these furrows on the ground. But they put the blocks underneath, or rocks, to bring that, that vine up off the ground so that it doesn't get dirty or that there's less exposure to insects. But one of the things that is done then is again too so that it produces more fruit is that it's washed on a regular basis and that word purge means that. He says, you know, when God sees fruit being produced in your life, He washes us even more. And God is wanting to do that. We're, <laughs> we're in the dirt, but because of the solid rock of Jesus Christ, we're up off the dirt. But the Holy Spirit, you know, there is a washing that God is wanting to do to produce even more fruit in our lives, and we're called to that. But it's to be a more and more thing. Chapter 3, verse 12, abound in love. Chapter 4, verse 1, that you would abound more and more. And again, too, in verse 10 now, when he talks about the agape love, he says that you would increase more and more. And it's an acknowledgement that there's never a place that we feel like, I'm a loving person. I do a good job loving everybody in a godly way, in an agape way. If anything, the, fly, the flesh is fighting against that. If anything, sometimes we, our hearts become disillusioned or hardened with people. I think that's something now as I'm getting older I have to guard against even more. Because sometimes when people do you wrong or something is said or done, there's this tendency to feel like, ah, you know. I, I can almost picture Moses leading the people of the children of or the children of Israel for 40 years. And at first, you know, he's obeying God and God's doing all this miraculous stuff. But by the end, and all the complaining, it just wears you out. And eventually he gets in the flesh. And eventually, you know, you rebels, we need to bring water over the rock. And he's yelling at them and smiting the rock. I mean, it's just like, okay. We got to guard against that. We have to recognize that we need to abound or to increase more and more. Verse 11 of our passage that you study to be quiet. <laughs> for some people, they're naturally quiet. But for others, they should study to be quiet. Yeah, so much, so many problems can be averted if a person would just simply. Keep their mouth shut and learn to keep their mouth shut and to be quiet. The book of Proverbs, and again, too, you want to read one chapter that talks about the tongue, the things that come out, out of our mouths, read Proverbs chapter 15. I mean, sometimes it's just far better if we don't say anything. 
You know, I, I remember too one time hearing a message and the pastor basically um, used one particular word. Is it, what's that word, honey? True? Is it kind? Is it? Well, never mind. I'll have it ready for the second service. Think. That's it. Think before you speak. T, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? And K, is it kind? Think before you speak. Study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your hands as we commanded you that you may walk honestly. And again, he starts the chapter out by talking how we ought to walk to please God, but also, too, that in our walk, it affects our witness among the non-believers, what they see. And he says that you may walk honestly towards them that are without, outside the body of Christ, and that you may have lack of nothing. Basically saying, work hard and be concerned about how your walk is perceived by those that are out in the world and that you may have lack of nothing, God will provide for our needs. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. And even at times, Lord, there are difficult things that are addressed in your word, but Lord, you address these things for our benefit. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't forsake the study of your word or even to the desire to fulfill what your commands and your word says. Because also, Lord, even as we do those things, we're brought to an even closer and more intimate relationship with you. If there are areas, Lord, of our lives, not even just sexually, but any area of sin that needs to be confessed, Lord, that we would come to you and confess those things as sin and receive the mercy and the forgiveness that's available that Jesus purchased with his precious blood on the cross. Lord, bless your people. Lord, help us... Uh, to love one another even more and more. We just ask you these things in your mighty name. Amen.